Burton, left their native soil in England to pursue religious liberty in Holland. While they were there, they studied the New Testament carefully to try to determine what constitutes a true follower of Christ and what constitutes a church of Jesus Christ. Religious persecution had been the reason they had left their own nation. In fact, some of their leaders had actually been killed by the local authorities because of their refusal to adhere to the teachings of the Church of England. That persecution began to lift in the year 1611, and about 1611, or perhaps early in 1612, this group, and there were only ten of them, by the way, left Holland and returned to England. They established a church, which is commonly thought to be the first Baptist church ever formed outside the walls of London in a village called Spitalfield. Helwys, who was the leader of that group, wrote... This for publication, he himself being a lawyer by training and by profession. He wrote this to the king of England. The king of England is a mere mortal and not God. Therefore, the king of England cannot have jurisdiction over the souls of any man. That got Helwys thrown into jail. He advocated, as did this whole group of English separatists who became Baptists, advocated religious liberty. If you know your American history, you know the name Roger Williams. He was banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony because of his practices of congregationalism. He went to Rhode Island, formed a new colony, and one of the hallmarks of that colony, really the hallmark, was religious liberty. It was there that he formed the First Baptist Church in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, we're fond of saying in our church that we are Christians who happen to be Baptists. And that's the truth. Our main interest is in being Christians. The First Baptist Church, of which I spoke earlier in England, in its confession of faith, there is no mention of its being a Baptist church. In fact, in its confession, those who wrote it merely said, we are the Church of Christ. They did not see themselves as Baptists. Actually, the name Baptist was a derogatory term which was used as a put-down by those outside their little congregation to describe them. But throughout the history of Baptists, Baptists in England as well as in the United States have been at the forefront of the movement for religious freedom, religious liberty. The reason is because... Baptists throughout their history have been persecuted for what they believe. They've been imprisoned. Helwys himself was imprisoned and he died in Newgate Prison, by the way. He never received release from that prison. But also some have been killed for their commitment to Christ as they've interpreted that commitment from the New Testament. We who are Christians, not just Baptists, but Christians, should carry the ball forward into history insisting upon religious liberty. How can we preserve religious liberty? This passage of Scripture teaches us very clearly how that might happen. The first thing which we see from this passage is that religious liberty will not be preserved by our being intolerant of other Christians outside our own group. John came as the spokesman for these apostles to Jesus And he talks about an encounter that they had had with an exorcist who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Why was John and why were the apostles intolerant of this man? Well, one suggestion in the text is that they were themselves spiritually impotent. 
If we were able to read earlier, that same day when Jesus had come down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, they had encountered a man who had come to the disciples of Christ, asking those disciples. In fact, he says, I begged your disciples to cast this demon out of my son because this demon causes him to froth at the mouth and throw himself into the fire and do all kinds of damage to him. But he said they could not do anything. You see, they were spiritually impotent. Now, let's stop here just a moment. When Christ called these men to be apostles out of many people whom he had ability to call, because there were many of those people who were disciples of Christ, this was the commission which Jesus gave to them in Mark chapter 3. They were to, first of all, be with him. And when Christ calls you to follow him, he's called us who know Jesus to follow him. The main thing he's interested in is that we spend time with him. That's our number one calling. The second was to preach the gospel. Now, typically we Baptists stop right there, but the next command was to cast out demons in the name of Christ. Here these people were approached by a man who had a son who was demonized, and he was pleading with them to cast the demon out of his son. But they couldn't do it. They were spiritually impotent. Probably this caused some guilt in their lives. Don't you imagine? Spiritual impotence typically does. Either they were not doing the ministry, or we don't do the ministry, or if we do it, there's no showing forth of the power of God in the doing of the ministry. And we become guilty in a situation like that. We are really feeling guilty. There's another reason that these people were spiritually impotent and it showed is because they were jealous. They were jealous of what this man was able to do. There's a story found in Numbers 11 about Moses. Moses was covered up with people. His father-in-law, Jethro, suggested that he get somebody to help him. In fact, he said, get you some elders. There were 70 men whom Moses chose to help him. Those men were instructed to come to the tent of meeting to meet Moses for instruction. However, there were two men who refused to come. They stayed in the camp with the rest of the people while the other 68 did as they were asked to do. There was a young boy who noticed these two men. Their names are rather unusual names, Eldad and Medad. And Eldad and Medad were down in the camp, and they were prophesying. This young man comes, and I can see him running now breathlessly, coming to Moses. And he speaks to Joshua, Moses' protege, and he says to Joshua, these guys are down there. Then Joshua turns to Moses, and he says, Lord Moses... Tell those people to stop casting this kind of communication before the people. Tell them not to prophesy. You know what Moses said? He said, I'm sure rather firmly to his disciple, Joshua, he said, Are you jealous for me? I wish that not only those two men and the other 68 who are here at the tent of meeting, I wish every person in Israel, about a million strong, were able to prophesy and that every person would have the Spirit of God fall upon them as he has fallen upon me. What does that say? He understood the importance of what God's doing and affirming what God is doing other places besides where you and I are practicing our faith. Now, here's a tough pill for us to swallow sometimes, pastors particularly. When God's working in another church or among another group of people who claim to know Jesus Christ, 
there's a tendency for us just to find something to pick apart about that group who know Jesus and are seeking to communicate the gospel. But do you know what we should do? Our right response is, praise God that He's doing something somewhere. He may not be doing it at Cardinal Baptist Church. He may not be doing it among Southern Baptists. But praise God He's doing it somewhere. And then we need to go and learn from them how they're being used by the Lord. So one of the reasons that these twelve apostles of Christ were intolerant of this exorcist is because of their spiritual impotence. Could that be true of us sometimes? Well, there's another reason that's in this passage. It was not only their spiritual impotence, but it was also their spiritual arrogance. Look again at verse 49. And John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. You see... They were wanting this man to conform to the image of the apostle group, not necessarily the image of Jesus Christ. And they said, he's not one of us, therefore he can't be right. That is the mentality that these men represented in this situation. They were acting like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the arch enemies of Jesus. They were hypocrites. And they loved to argue about things Religious. They love to argue. And they love to argue for the sake of argument. Now, I would stop and say this, and please hear me. There is a place for loving debate within the body of Christ regarding doctrine. We want to constantly refine what is truth as we see it revealed in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not advocating never calling people into question about what they believe. What I am saying is, if that's to be done, it's to be done lovingly. The Pharisees were not loving in any way, form, or fashion. They were just the opposite. They were very mean-spirited people. And they were argumentative. That's what happened in the lives of the apostles. They became argumentative. And arguing always, please listen, always dehumanizes the person with whom we argue about spiritual things. Look again at verse 49. Master, we saw someone casting out demons. He didn't even bother, they didn't even bother to get the name of the person that they engaged in arguing with. And that's what happens. One thing I can say about the Christian faith, with no doubt, is that the Christian faith personalizes people for whom Christ died. Jesus knows our name. My sheep hear me, Jesus says, and I know them. Jesus knows us by name. We may not know each other's names, but what I would suggest to you today, one of the things that we should aim for as believers in Christ is to see people as being more than faces, to see them as a person who has a name and communicate with them in this manner. You see how spiritual arrogance leads to the dehumanization of people? Not to mention this little boy who was demonized. While these people were futilely, the, the apostles futilely trying to cast the demon out, their arrogance probably was keeping them from doing it. And there's nothing more deadly to effective expression of the Christian life than pride. Nothing kills the Spirit of the Lord's involvement in our lives and in our church like spiritual pride. We face this issue of spiritual arrogance in our setting of denominationalism. 
I picked this up this morning as I was reviewing what I was going to say, and I read, according to the World Christian Encyclopedia, at the turn of the 20th century, there were 1,900 denominations in the world. At the turn of the 21st century, now get this, there were 22,000 denominations in the world. That's proliferation that's not good, would you say? From 1900 to 22,000. Allow me to read some of the statements which have been made by great, great Christian men of the past. I'll begin with a Baptist, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, it's the most widely published and circulated of all books in the history of modern man. John Bunyan said, I would be, as I hope I am, a Christian. But for those factious titles of Anabaptist, Independent, Presbyterian, and the like, I conclude that they come neither from Jerusalem nor from Antioch, but from hell or Babylon. Whoa. That's strong. I didn't say that now. John Bunyan said that. God rest his soul. George Whitfield, a great evangelist, a sidekick for many years of John Wesley, said, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No. Any Presbyterians? No. Any Independents or Methodists? No, no, no. Whom have you there? And then here's the response from Father Abraham. We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians. Oh, is this the case? Then God help us to forget party names and to become Christians in deed and truth. And then William Wilberforce, who was the chief architect of the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, a devout follower of Jesus Christ, a member of the Church of England. This is what he wrote. Though I am an Episcopalian by birth, I yet feel such a oneness and sympathy with the cause of God at large that nothing would be more delightful than communing once a year with every church that holds the head even Christ. Interesting, isn't it? How the splintering of the Christian church into all these denominations, it has some basis in our own spiritual arrogance. We see this in Christian experience. There are people who have had a very vital and very real experience with Jesus, and they try to make those experiences normative for all others. And just because you may not have an experience that I have had, in no way makes you inferior to me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's the experience everybody needs to have to be a true follower of Christ. We need to do what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Is Jesus Christ reigning in my heart? Is He reigning in your heart? If Jesus Christ is Lord in our hearts, then we have all there is to have of Jesus. We have all there is to have of the Holy Spirit. He has come to live in us, to fill us, and to give us what we need for living the Christian life. The thing you and I need to deal with is Christ's Lord in our lives. Let me remind you that the most immature church in the New Testament was the Corinthian church. It was the most gifted church spiritually, too. So being gifted and being mature are not necessarily one and the same thing. Remember what they were saying among themselves in Corinth? 
I am of Paul, one group was saying. I'm of Apollos, another group was saying. I am of Cephas, another group was saying. And then there was a super spiritual group which was saying, I am of Christ. They already had denominations in Corinth, didn't they? They had at least four we're aware of. And they were the most immature of all the people we have record of in the New Testament. Spiritual arrogance. There's one other, and I won't linger very long here. Spiritual ignorance. We are apt to condemn that which we do not understand. Isn't that true? These people, the apostles, just like us, didn't take the time to get to know the guy. They just drew a conclusion based on an assumption that was not a valid assumption. And so they were people who showed their own ignorance. When I was a boy in my hometown, high school student, I began to go to a parachurch organization known as Young Life. And it filled a great need in my life that was going unmet at that time in my life by my own local church. A rumor began to be circulated by a local church in our community that Young Life was communist in orientation. Nothing could be further from the truth. A close examination of that particular church from which this rumor came showed that their youth group had dwindled down to virtually nothing because they weren't being relevant in the way in which they were reaching out to teenagers in our community. You see how spiritual ignorance also is a reason that we're intolerant of other people? So what is a proper response? Let's say you and I are on the receiving end of intolerance, and Baptists have been on the receiving end of so much intolerance, and we as Christians, evangelical Christians in the United States, are getting heat all the time from the media, the courts, and everything else. What is a proper response to such a situation? Well, let's look one more time at verse 49. And John answered and said, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he does not follow along with us. Now, the word translated tried to hinder is one word in the Greek New Testament. And it's a word which is a tense that suggests they didn't try just once to keep him from casting out demons. They tried it over and over and over again unsuccessfully. They were not able to gain success. And the reason is, obviously, what was the exorcist doing? He just kept on doing what he had been commissioned by Christ to do. When Billy Graham came to preach in my hometown, he was questioned by the media as to what percentage of churches in any given city would protest his being there. He said, on average, about 10%. And then those representatives of the media asked him, and what is your response? He said, I ignore their protest and I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will always have people who will be intolerant of us. The right response that we're to have to those situations is to ignore the protest and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the right response. What happens... What is the ultimate outcome of intolerance of other Christians who do not believe, who do not find themselves a part of our group? Well, think about Jesus. What killed Christ from the human perspective? Not from the Godward side, but from man's side. What killed Jesus? 
Intolerance, really. The Pharisees' intolerance killed Jesus. In March of 1526, Felix Mons, Jacob Falk, and Henry Remond were bound tightly, placed in a boat, rowed out, rowed out into the middle of Lake Zurich, and there they were thrown to their deaths over the side of the boat. Now, the question is, what was their crime? Here was their crime. They were Anabaptists, which the word Anabaptist means to be baptized again. And they were the forebearers of Baptists, by the way, because they believed that a person is to be baptized after putting faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Their crime was for baptizing adults in the name of Jesus Christ. And guess who put them to death? Christians put them to death. Intolerance killed them. One of their number escaped. His name was Balthazar Hubmeyer. He went to Moravia in one year. The year following his escape to Moravia, 6,000-plus adults gave their lives to Christ and were baptized as believers in Christ under the sound of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1528, two years after his friends died, he too died. He was burned at the stake in the name of Christ by Christians. Well, what we've discovered is that religious freedom, religious liberty, will not be preserved if we are intolerant of other Christians outside of our group. However, religious liberty will be preserved if we include those Christians who are outside of our group. Jesus included this exorcist. We see this in verse 50. Look at it. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. And we saw how Mark says, He who is not against us is for us. Jesus saw that there was a great work which was taking place through this unnamed exorcist. A great work. And it was being done in his name, in the name of Christ. And Christ, therefore, was being glorified as a result of the great work which was being done by this man in the name of Jesus Christ. Wow, this exorcist, I'd like to have a conversation with him. He knew who the real enemy was. The apostles weren't the enemies. Who was the real enemy? The same as today. Who's the real enemy? Satan is the enemy today. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where our battle is to be waged. Not against one another, those who know Christ, but against Satan. Paul was no stranger to this kind of conflict. While he was in prison, he wrote the letter to the Philippians, and he said, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Now listen. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. That's the important thing, that Jesus Christ is preached. Do you know people who don't even know Jesus Christ 
can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and other people be saved under the sound of their voice? Do you know that? Because it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. The power is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, a great theologian of yesteryear, said this, Better a thousand times that this work of warring against Satan be done by other hands than not be done at all. So we should rejoice when God is moving through people who aren't just exactly like we are as far as crossing every T and dotting every I the way we do our doctrine. So the question is, and this is a very important question, I hope you're still with me now. This is very important, what I'm about to say. You may recall two weeks ago, I gave a sermon based on Psalm 33:12, which says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And among the pantheon of gods which are worshipped in America is what I call the God of your choice. And tolerance is the mantra of that particular way of thinking. If you're just sincere is what that kind of thinking says. It doesn't matter what you believe. Anybody who is sincere is going to God because there are many paths which lead to God. Now that flies in the face of what Christianity is all about. It contradicts clearly what Jesus himself says about himself. What does Jesus say? I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how are we to know whom we are to include when we're being tolerant within the body of Christ? Who really makes up the body of Christ? Larry read from the book of Jude. And one little phrase sticks out in the book of Jude. It says, devoid of the Spirit. Did you catch that? Devoid of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, the Bible says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. What makes a person a follower of Jesus Christ? You name Him your Lord. You make Him your boss. You crown Him your King in your life. And you submit yourself to Him, and the Holy Spirit gives you the power to do that. Is Jesus Christ your Lord today? Have you set apart Him, set Him apart as Lord in your heart today? That's one test we can apply. Here's another test. And by the way, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, Try the spirits to see if they are of God. And the word try doesn't mean we're going on a witch hunt everywhere trying to figure out where the heretics are, okay? But what it does suggest is it was used in the assayer's office to describe a person who brings a piece of ore and brings it to the assayer in hopes that when the assayer puts it to the test, the assayer will discover it's real gold or real silver. That's the idea. Now, when we think about that, if you and I had been in that situation and we brought something to a guy to figure out if it's for real, I would hope it would be right, and he would too. Why? Because he's going to get a cut of it if it's right. So when we try the spirits to see if they're of God, we hope what we see is of the Lord, but sometimes it's not. And in that same section in 1 John chapter 4, 2, here's another test. John talks about this. He says... If anyone teaches that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, he is not from God. There were people then, there are people today who would say Jesus was divine, but he was not human. 
that Jesus had to be human to secure our salvation. There had to be a like sacrifice for you and me, Jesus being fully man, fully God, in order to secure our salvation. So we need to make sure that those people we fellowship with and serve the Lord in sharing the gospel around the world are people who know Jesus Christ as their Lord, but also who recognize Jesus as not merely divine, but also human. Fully God, fully man. Now here's the last test, and there are probably many more. But these are the main ones that I could think of in preparation for this message. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. As you're turning there, there's an episode in the history of Israel. A group of Samaritans came to Zerubbabel, who was in charge of the rebuilding of the temple after the Jews had returned from exile. For 70 years they'd been in exile in Babylon. They came back and they were rebuilding the temple. And they came to Zerubbabel and the leaders of Israel. And this is what they said. Let us build with you. Let us build with you. For we worship God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since King Esarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. And their response was no, because you're really not worshiping. You say God, but you really don't know him as we know him. You know him as an impersonal force, not as your personal God, not as Jehovah God. And here's another verse out of 2 John, verse 10. Listen to this carefully. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching referred to is the teaching that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, not just as, a God, as God, but also came in the flesh. If anyone does not bring this teaching to you, do not receive that person into your house. Now, this is strong here. Don't even give that person a greeting. For everyone who greets such a person takes place in his wicked works. In other words, there are people going from house to house. There were then, there have been ever since, there always will be till Christ comes back, who are preaching a gospel that is not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at Galatians chapter 1 and begin with verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And Paul could not have chosen any stronger way of expressing what he was saying when he said, let him be accursed. He goes on to reiterate that in verse 8, 9 rather. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Now, what was the gospel which the Galatians had received. Here's the gospel. Now listen carefully. Very simple. Christ died for your sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What had happened in the churches in Galatia was this. 
there had been a group of people who came to be known by theologians as Judaizers. And this is what they were saying. They were saying, it's not enough that Christ took your place on the cross. It's not enough that Jesus Christ paid for your sins. You have to add something to it. And do you know what they were adding to it? They were saying, you've got to be circumcised too. Now, what does that tell us about who we can have genuine fellowship and work with in the gospel? If anybody says you've got to be baptized to go to heaven, if anybody says you've got to tithe your money to the church to go to heaven, now I believe in both, especially the latter, the tithing part. I really believe in that. If anybody adds anything to what Jesus Christ has done for us, that person, according to the Word of God, these are not my words, let him be accursed. In other words, we don't need to be around that guy because God might zap him and we don't want to be caught up in that, right? That's for sure. We need to understand that those with whom we walk in this wonderful enterprise of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations, are people who have the Holy Spirit because they recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord. People who recognize Jesus is not merely divine, but fully human also. And people who don't add anything to what Jesus Christ did. We believe in salvation by the work of Christ, not by our own salvation, because that's what the New Testament teaches as we finish this morning, let's go back to John a moment. When Jesus called his first group of apostles, he gave a nickname to John and his brother James. Do you remember the nickname? He nicknamed them Sons of Thunder. Boy, they must have been bad dudes. You may remember when they went into a Samaritan village and nobody believed they came back to Jesus and said, Jesus, they were disrespectful of you and your message. Let's just burn them up. Just wipe them out. That's what they would have done. And Jesus said, we're not going to do that. Because Jesus respects individuals' right to respond affirmatively to him or to reject him. That's religious freedom, really. That's religious liberty. That's what's made our country great to a great extent. God has done it. But we have a nation where people can come. And they can believe what they want to here, even if it's to their own peril. I am going to suggest something that there's no way I can confirm it strictly from Scripture. But I think this may have been a turning point in John's life. Because later, he was called not a son of thunder, but the disciple of love. He learned to love people who weren't exactly like himself, including, I'm sure, this exorcist that we've considered together today from Luke. What about us? What about you? What about me? Are we people who want to reach out and draw our brothers and sisters in Christ from other churches and other denominations into our circle and to participate with them for the advancement of the gospel? God wants that. He wants to see a unified people marching to the beat of the same drum the beat of fulfilling what we've come to call the Great Commission of Jesus Christ.